Our reading today comes from Psalm 22. Starting with verse 27. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come up and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This ends the reading of God's word, and at this time, children can be dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, Faith Family at the Landing. What a joy to sing great truth in great songs and to pray great truth now to study it together. Let's ask God's help in prayer. Father, pour out your Spirit upon us and teach us from Psalm 22, especially the last paragraph that Tom just read. Thank you for its call to engage in the missionary enterprise that it lays upon our lives. Guide us and strengthen us with what we need to obey that call. Bless us with the power of your word. Let it achieve what it teaches. We don't want to just read it and wrestle with it as if it were some kind of intellectual exercise, but much more than that, we want a spiritual exercise to occur. Instruct us, transform us, sanctify us into the presence and image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Some in this room, after this message, might hear a call to dedicate yourself to lifelong mission. Some in this room might hear a call to say, I'm going to join the next short-term missions trip that comes along that I find God drawing me to. Some might say, I'm going to join a team like Mercy Ships and go out for two years for the sake of caring for others in a medical and merciful way around the world. Some might feel a call to join the missions team and foment and foster and strengthen missions among us here at the landing. Some of you might say, I've found new discovery on how I'm going to capture the Word of God in my own heart and share it as my own testimony. Others of you from this message might find yourself burdened to pray for the nations of the world more earnestly than you ever have before. Look here to Psalm 22. It's David's song of testimony. He's the warrior, not yet king, when he writes Psalm 22. He's gone through a horrible experience where his enemies circle around him and they seek to do him harm. And then God saves him. And out of that, David has three experiences, the same as three as we. He glorifies God in praise and in worship. He strengthens his brothers, you and me. And he wants to extend the word of God, the gospel, to the ends of the earth, including all the nations. Those three responses of David in Psalm 22 make up the best of healthy Christian lives and healthy Christian churches. Healthy Christian ministries and organizations, every one of them, will be driven by these three initiatives, every single one. To the degree that these three are neglected or set aside or minimized to that degree, Christians and families and churches and ministries will be unhealthy. 
This is one of the most sweeping declarations of what it's like to follow Christ in all the Bible. It's it's a call to savor the Lord like we're coming to a, a banquet feast. It's a call to strengthen each other's hand in God, saying, I need you and you need me to walk with Christ. The Christian life is not a solo effort. It's a call to send the gospel to the ends of the earth to see the coming generations and all the nations of the earth as those to whom we must proclaim the gospel. We want to be a social contagion of joy to every person with whom we interact, using every means and method to proclaim the good news of Christ to an incredibly needy and dying world. Everything we do in the faith family at the landing comes under the heading of one or more of these three initiatives. Savoring, strengthening, and spreading. That's what we exist for. They are the way that we enjoy the banquet feast, the way that we welcome and stir up one another, the way that we share freely and generously the good news to the world around us, even to our own household and unbelievers, wherever we may encounter them. This last Thursday, my wife and I celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary. She's been very patient for 38 years. We went to the Superior Hiking Trail. We're hiking up in the the mountains above Lake Superior, going around uh, 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 the Oberg Trail, and we saw these beautiful lookouts, and we were sitting down looking over one valley and all the colors of the leaves and the Lake Superior off to the east, and a gentleman noticed that I had my landing t-shirt on, and he says to me from behind my back, are you from Wisconsin? And I said, no. Like, why would you ask? He says, oh, there's a bar and a, and, a, and a grill called The Landing in Wisconsin. And I said, no, we're a church in Duluth. And in that moment of quiet that you can imagine, I said, it's a different kind of eating. And he walked away. <laughs> We love to feast on God, tell others to come join us, strengthen each other in tasting and enjoying and finding that the Lord is good, and then sharing it freely and widely as far as we can, God being our helper. That's what, Lord willing, the landing will be doing until Christ comes back. Here's what stuns the careful reader of Psalm 22. It's not just David's biographical or or testimonial psalm. It's actually Christ, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, before he was conceived in Mary's womb as the God-man, providentially orchestrating David's experiences so that he would write this down and preserve it as Holy Scripture, inerrant and authoritative and alive, and so that Jesus, 800 years later, the son of David, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, could hang on the cross and quote this psalm and say, that psalm is mine. This is the breathtaking, stunning, supernatural nature of Scripture. What David writes in authentic experience of his own needing of salvation, receiving it, and then praising God is actually David foretelling exactly what will happen to the Lord Jesus Christ eight centuries later for the salvation of the world. 
Jesus dies on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Jesus is not saved from death like David is in the psalm. Jesus is allowed to go through death in order to conquer it, in order to overcome it, in order to not just conquer death for himself. He rose again, proving death could not hold him. But in his rising again, he proves death can't hold us. There's no rational reason for any person to go to a dangerous place in the world and share the gospel with someone who doesn't want you there and might kill you if you come if you think they're killing you is the worst possible thing that can happen to you. Don't go. But if you know there's something worse than them killing you, then go. What's worse than them killing you? You dying without Christ. If you know that their killing you might be God's ordained means by which you are prepared to rise again from the dead with Jesus and all the saints to join him forever in heaven, then go, indeed go. Bring your coffin with you, but go. In this passage Tom just read, there are three incentives for us to engage in the third aim of our vision, mission, world global mission, including and, and maximizing itself in local conversations of the gospel, evangelism, acts of kindness, even to the end of the earth. I'll tell them to you as I have tried to glean them from this passage and then show you where I get them. First from verses 27 and 28, we mobilize for mission because God is king of the world. Second, from verse 29, we mobilize for mission because God will one day raise the dead. Third, we mobilize for mission because God will accomplish His perfect will, verses 30 and 31. Our heart for mission, the heart for mission in the church doesn't come because we discern the need. It doesn't come because we're looking for ways to be super Christians. It doesn't come because we're plotting and, and, and chiding one another to, to do better, do better, do better. No, no. It comes because we've had long, deep, rich, lingering meditations on the nature of God. Missions is God-driven, not need-driven. I once had a phone call with a man after I, I preached these very same things to another church family in another location a long, long time ago. We talked on the phone and he said, you said on Sunday that we should, we should send our children and send our dollars and send our missionaries to the ends of the earth, even to nations that don't welcome us, in order that we might share the gospel with them and they might be saved. And I said, yes, I did. Thanks for re reporting my message back to me so well. He says, I don't agree with that. I don't support that. I said, okay, why is that? Because we have all kinds of unbelievers right here in our own city. He said, we don't need to send people to other parts of the world in order to find unbelievers. He said, there's unbelievers right in my own neighborhood. We talked for a long time about the vision of God and what the Bible says, and he was very willing to talk with me about it. In fact, I was honored by his phone call. One of the things I ended up saying to him at the very end of our conversation is we dare not seek to be smarter than the Bible. We see over and over that when we focus on sharing the gospel well within our own homes and with our own families and with our own church and neighborhood and our own workplace and, and at school and in our own online interactions, we become good at sharing the gospel and excited about doing it, and it, it just naturally grows larger and larger, and we want to send it to the ends of the earth. 
And when we focus on the furthest away needy places around the world, places where it seems so very hard to proclaim the gospel and see anyone repent and trust in Christ, we find that our light that shines the farthest shines brightest at home. That's the history and witness, not only of the Bible, but the entire history of the Christian church. The light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. We dare not pull apart and divide two great initiatives, share the gospel with the nations, share the gospel with your neighbors, that the Bible marries intimately together. We dare not be smarter than the Bible. I don't think he was helped by that answer. Not that I know, but I was helped by that conversation. Let's look at these three reasons or incentives to mobilize mission. Look at verses 27 and 28. David, you remember, and he's prophetically speaking for Christ, has just said, I've been saved by God. I've been saved by His salvation, His his rescuing, delivering hand. And I want to praise Him in the congregation, and I want to tell my brothers to join me. And then he says in verse 27, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It's remarkable for David, an Israelite, fighting against all the nations of the earth to say that one day all these nations we're fighting against, they're all going to worship you, Lord. All the nations that we stand in enmity against and feel like they are so far from knowing you, having all their false gods, having all their dark and unholy ways, engaging in so many different kinds of sin and God truth-suppressing unholiness. How could they become believers? But God says, through David, all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It's remarkable for David to speak such truth. He must have been meditating surely on Genesis 12, 3, where God said that to Abraham. He must have been meditating on, on, the, on the way that Noah was told that, that he would be a father, and that many nations would come through him. He must have been meditating on Babylon and how God ordained that the languages would be divided and that the gospel would go out. And he must have been filled with the Spirit as Christ, the second person of the Trinity, enables him to declare such gloriously Bible-wide truth. Twice David says, shall. Did you notice that in verse 27? It shall come to pass. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before Him. It's not a question. It's not uncertain. It's not a possibility. It's not a hope. It's not something to strive for as if it couldn't happen. It shall come to pass. Why? Why is David so certain? Because of verse 28. For, that shows we have a ground here. This is a big, solid cause. Because or for Kingship belongs to the Lord. It's the covenant word Lord there, almost always applying to His covenant love over Israel as His people, but now it says God's kingship as the Lord, the covenant Lord, belongs to Him over all the nations. And the verse ends, and He rules over the nations. God ultimately has the power to transform darkened nations, darkened hearts, darkened governments. Men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and people who are worshipers of something else. God doesn't go to the nations and send missionaries to where there are blank slates. Oh no, He goes to where there's other worship happening that must be repented of. Only God can 
achieve such a transformation in the heart. Only God can move upon the heart in such a way that that person begins to say, oh, I'm under, I'm under the power of God and he's using me to do his work in these most needy and hard-hearted of people. It's a natural question to ask, if God is this absolutely sovereign, why do we pray, evangelize, and go as missions? But it's interesting that the Bible doesn't share that framework or beginning point. In fact, it says if God isn't sovereign, there is no hope in going. The English slave trader turned pastor and evangelist John Newton, a name I'm sure you know. He wrote Amazing Grace and many other hymns. He wrote to a pastor friend one time, and he said this, If I did not believe in the Lord's sovereignty, I think I should have no more hope of success in preaching to men than in preaching to horses or cows. For Newton and for the Bible and for all faithful believers, God is gracious, powerful, and sin-overcoming, heart-replacing, eye-opening in His sovereignty. And that's our only hope in going. But a hope indeed it is. Look at the verses again. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Why? For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. Is there someone in your life that seems so far from the gospel that it seems impossible for you to have any effect on them? Like you're, you're a tiny little flea pecking at a massive wall, granite wall? Does it seem like there's a loved one or a co-worker or an online interaction or a friend who simply does not want to hear the gospel? They don't want to hear the good news of God's love, and they seem so resistant and hardened against him? John Newton, you know, had a friend, very close friend, one he grew close with for most of his life in a town called Olney, England. His friend's name was William. William had a love as a teenager that was forbidden. You could read the biography. He had a longing and a love to love a person for whom it was absolutely forbidden and many in his family told him so to his, to his encouragement and wellness, but actually to his also great sorrow. In fact, he began a life of depression because he decided that life wasn't worth living if he couldn't love the one who was forbidden him. He was in and out of sanatoriums. He was in and out of, of care of every sort and kind that was available in 19th century England. And yet, finally, through the counsel and care, the biblical counseling of a man named John Newton, who provides an example for us in that regard, William Cowper, or Cooper, was turned in his heart. All the while, in his ups and downs during the counsel he received from Pastor John Newton and friend, they would write hymns together, and one of which was the one we sang just moments ago, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. Sometimes I see his frowning providence, but if I look real carefully behind the clouds of his frowning providence, I can see his smiling face. It was very good, William, that you did not follow the sinful path of forbidden love. And it was very good that God brought John Newton into your life and the gospel. William Cowper was saved mightily and powerfully, wrote many other hymns just like that one, glorious and powerful as that one is. And John Newton is the one to say, I'm not just preaching to cows. God's power is what opens hearts. 
Let that settle on your heart right now that what you hope in is not your skill or the skill of man in any form or fashion. No strategy, no, no teachability, no cleverness, no slickness of speech, no preparedness. None of that ultimately transforms human hearts. God does with a mighty work only He can achieve. We mobilize for mission not only because God has the power and is sovereign over the nations, but we mobilize because he raises the dead. Verse 29, this is a little obtuse, a challenge to see, but it's here. All the prosperous, all the wealthy of the earth eat and worship. They have lots to eat, and then they worship their gods, generic worship. Before him, God, those prosperous shall bow in worship to God. All who go down to the dust. That all the people whose gods have not been able to keep them from dying, even they, those who have died because of of their worshiping false gods and, and being part of the death of this world, they too will bow down before him. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. That's what David is saying. It's, it's shocking, isn't it? It's stunning. Right in the middle of Psalm 22, near the end here, David says, There are dead people. They were prosperous and they ate a lot and did their worship while they were alive, but now they're in the dust. They're going to bow down before God someday. That's what he says. So David, are you saying that, that all the dead people are going to come alive someday and they're all going to worship God? That sounds kind of crazy. Is that what you're saying, David? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Not only is this what David is saying, it's what the whole rest of the Bible says. Jesus says it this way in John 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And Paul says plainly that there will come a day when every knee will bow and tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Resurrection, in other words, is, is alluded to clearly here in Psalm 22, and it's a motivation for mission. Does that settle in your mind? The fact that the dead are raised motivates me to mission. Because the dead come back to life, that motivates me to mission. In other words, I want to go to souls and I want to win them to Christ because even though they will die like I will, they will rise again. And if they've died in the Lord, they will forever be with Him in heaven. If they've rejected the Lord, they are not His and they are risen only to judgment and eternal punishment. Jesus puts these two perfectly together in a powerful way that I couldn't help but read for you as I was studying this. Listen to the way Jesus marries together our mission from the fact that he's raised from the dead and he'll raise us. He's on the road to Emmaus talking to the two who were sad about his death, didn't realize he was raised and standing in front of them talking to him. He says in Luke 24, 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus is clearly including the Psalms, surely Psalm 22, as he stands in front of these two saying it's now fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He alone can do that. And said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's not a hard stretch from Psalm 22 because of the fact Jesus quotes this psalm on the cross. Verse 47, and that 
repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There it is. Resurrection means mission. You lose the doctrine of resurrection in the church, nobody's going to the mission field. You minimize the doctrine of resurrection as a supernatural reality that started and and sustains the church of Jesus Christ. You will have no one caring about or going to the mission field, for it will seem absolutely foolish and a waste of time and money. But if you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you will hear his mandate here, repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed among the nations in his name. If we revel in the supernatural power of God, not only to raise Christ from the dead, but to raise everyone from the dead, and believers to raise them from the dead unto eternal life, then we find here, just as David says, a massive motivation for mission. A massive incentive to say, I want to preach repentance and forgiveness to every person that I come across who doesn't know it. You might wonder, What could I say? I'm not articulate. I I don't know a bunch of stuff. I, I sometimes find like my words get tangled when I'm talking with someone and I get nervous. What could I say? Do what David does. David's personal experience, what he absolutely went through, is so intimate and full of detail here in Psalm 22 that he wrote it down, and that's what became his psalm and his song. Take a journal, write down your experience of the goodness of God. Every one of you have tasted something wonderful from the Lord. Every one of you have enjoyed how the Lord has faithfully saved you, blessed you, cared for you, and grown you. Write that down. Let that be your testimony, your personal expression of faith. And watch how God will use that testimony not only to help others see that God is real and He's real in your life, but also it will be an invitation to the person you're speaking with. It will draw them powerfully. I'm not for a moment suggesting that our personal testimonies can somehow compare to Scripture, but in kind they have a similar effect. The Word of God runs out and does not return void. And the way the Word of God and the love of Christ has affected my life, while not inerrant, but also very helpful, goes out, and it can't be denied. The third motivation for mission comes from verses 30 and 31. We mobilize for mission because God will surely accomplish His will. You can see this so plainly. Posterity, verse 30 says, that is, all those after us, posterity shall serve him. David says, all the people after me in generations to come, they will serve Christ. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. That is, we're going to talk about the Lord to the coming generation. Our children will not be cheated and hear only portions of the gospel. They will not hear only snippets of our testimony. They will not hear only little bits of the glory of God in all the scriptures. We're going to tell everything to our children. We're not going to lay on our deathbeds when we get the final diagnosis and our lips won't move and our brains won't move and our, and our energy is gone Oh, I feel so ashamed because there was so much of God I wanted to tell my son and my daughter. It shall be told to the coming generation of the Lord. They shall come, the coming generation, and proclaim His righteousness, the Lord's, 
to a people yet unborn. They're going to tell their kids who aren't even born yet. What are they going to say? That he has done it. He has done what? He has saved your mom and your dad. He has saved your grandparents. He has saved all those on whom they rest spiritually. He has done it. He has preserved for himself a people from from Abraham and Moses and David, from Sarah and Ruth and Naomi and Hannah, and through Jesus and Mary and Paul and Peter, and, and the saints thereafter, and the saints after that, all the way down to your parents and my parents and to me, and I'm sharing with you all that I have of the glory of God, that you would know it. And you could say, looking back on your spiritual lineage, God has done it. God has achieved it. Christ on the cross said, it is done. Paul said to the Thessalonians, he who is faithful, he will do it. Jesus on the throne says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. It is done. That's the whole tone of the Bible. The the reality of God is so sure, His will being accomplished is so unquestionably true that we can say with confidence, He has done it. There's a beautiful picture of a church, a small and fledgling church in Northampton, Massachusetts in the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards was the pastor and he preached and loved the biblical God so highly, so freely, so fully. He's been a mentor to me. I've read so much of his writings and I find myself being drawn back to them when I'm studying. Somebody quotes him and I think, oh, I'm going to go look that up and there it is. And I read some wonderful thing from him. I read a portion of a sermon from him yesterday afternoon in which He says this, this beautiful, beautiful sentence that I lifted out to share with you today. He's talking about, he's in a sermon talking about how it is that you can trust in a a sovereign God whose will will surely be done and how that motivates you to endure anything and everything for the sake of the elect, like Paul said to Timothy. How can you go out? How can you spend? How can you spend lives and the lives of your children? How can you spend dollars and time and effort? How can you build buildings just for the sake of planting churches and then sending missionaries out of the churches that are planted? How can you invest so much of yourself into this, setting aside the silly play and distractions that the world offers so temptingly? And Edward says, here's how it happens. Here's here's what happens in your heart. And this kind of a sentence captures me. Edward says, Christ's holy joy of spirit in the consideration of the Father's sovereign grace. So what he means there is when you think about how God's going to get his will done, end of Psalm 22, for instance, there's a holy joy comes over your spirit when you think about that. That's what Edward says. Maybe that's on you right now. And he says it's from Christ. And the power that is the power of the Holy Spirit, he had given to Christ as mediator. So the very thing that Jesus has helping him to go to the cross is settling on you right now, this holy joy of spirit, as you meditate on the sovereign grace of God, just like Jesus did. The power he had given him as a mediator naturally excites the exercises of grace. What he means by that is, you just can't help it. You start thinking about living your life with exercises of grace. 
I am going to pray. I am going to pursue holiness and battle against sin. I'm going to love. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to go to people I'm not normally drawn to, and I'm going to greet them, and I'm going to be friendly to them. I'm going to endure slights and, and offenses and all kinds of gossip against me and just let it roll off my back. I'm going to forgive those who don't even ask for it. And I'm going to share my faith in Jesus Christ obnoxiously with people who need it. These graces start welling up in you, says Edwards. Christ's holy joy of spirit in the consideration of the Father's sovereign grace and the power He has given Him as a mediator naturally excites the exercises of grace and love in His heart, which He expresses in this gracious invitation. You have a gracious invitation to the lost every time you express this holy joy that comes over you when you think about God and His grace. Your joy in Christ becomes an invitation to the lost to repent and believe. God will certainly accomplish His will. He will certainly say, it is finished. Isaiah 46, 8-10, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I think I can be most helpful in the kingdom by not taking my wife and daughter and moving to Ukraine. Or Kazakhstan or Russia. I think I can be most useful by staying here. But that's a question worth pondering for me, isn't it? What's the question for you? What might God say if you said, Lord, I ponder your sovereign grace and it brings a Christ-like joy in my spirit and I want to exercise a little grace and when I do that I want to share my faith. I want to take parts of my journal and say, can I tell you what God's done for me? It'll be an invitation to you. It's an invitation your children can't resist when mom and dad share the graces God has achieved in their lives and the children see the glint in their parents' eye. They can't help but delight in that and want it so bad they can barely taste it. What next for you? Dream dreams with us, would you? of a possibility of planting a new daughter church in the area that would share the same vision with us? Dream dreams of a reward that comes to you as you devote vacation time to a short-term mission venture? Dream dreams of supporting a new, at a new level one of our missionary partners or one not yet known? Dream dreams of a visitation trip to some of our current missionary partners to bless and encourage and love them? Dream dreams of saying a quick yes to the next missions opportunity that God's Spirit presents to you? Dream dreams of a correspondence ministry to those serving around the world so they never once, never once feel alone. Dream dreams with the missions team for building and supporting the global cause of Christ among us as they plan for a second annual missions emphasis in October. 
I hope if you have any questions about these things, you'll, you'll talk with the elders or myself or a thoughtful believer and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. I realize lots and lots of churches have absolutely no missions program whatsoever. But I'm declaring to you, if they don't, it's because they haven't a biblical vision of God to begin with. A biblical vision of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ always yields a mighty, muscular, robust missions enterprise, both neighbors and the nations. That's my feeble effort at helping you see and taste a glimpse from Psalm 22 of our third church aim. First one, worship. Second, strengthen. Third, spreading through missions to our neighbors and the nations. If this is a church that you're a part of and you're a member, have a look at this landing covenant. You'll, you'll find it familiar. This is what we're striving for. This is not what we've achieved, and it is not what we have succeeded in, and it's, and it's convicting to every one of us who reads it because none of us feels like we've done this well. We don't put this in front of anybody to say, this is what you ought to test yourself against because none of us, everybody gets an F. Me included. This is rather a biblical restatement of the life and commands that the Spirit gives us in the whole Bible to live together in a certain way under those three, uh, three aims, savoring, strengthening, and spreading. To do those three, pleasing to the Lord, you can see all these Bible initiatives alluded to in these sentences these promises that we make with each other. Because God makes covenants with us, we make covenants with each other. Simple, clear, plain, simple. What a wonderful help. So if you're a member, we'll say this out loud together. We'll read the whole thing beginning with having been led right to the front and back. But if you're a member of another church, not this one, say this with us as well, that it might be true where you're a member. If you're not yet a member of this church, say it with us because this is just Bible. It's just Bible. Say it in the hopes and plans that this might be the direction you're moving to make a covenant with this church or another that aims at God's help in achieving these things. Where you find that you failed, receive grace for yourself. Where you find that we have failed, you receive grace and give it to us. Conviction will come over every one of us, but a sweet unity will come as well as we declare aloud the things of the Lord. If you don't know Christ and these aren't true for you, I'm not inviting you to step into hypocrisy and say what's not true of yourself. Don't say it if it, if it isn't true. But as you hear us say it while you're listening, know this. These are sweet realities to us. There's a spirit of Christ upon us. There's a joy within us. And we're exercising grace by saying this. And it might be that you start to feel pretty doggone invited to follow Christ. May it be so. Join with me, would you, nice and loud. Having been led by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and to confess Him as Lord, and on confession of this faith, 
Having been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ to lead lives worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to Him. By the Holy Spirit's aid and power, we promise to work and pray faithfully for the advancement of this church in biblical knowledge, wisdom, and holiness. We promise to regularly attend worship, participate in the ordinances, and abide by the doctrines of this church. We promise to walk together in Christian love and continually seek the peace and unity of this church. We promise to forsake the ways of sin and to walk in the paths of righteousness. We promise to maintain our relationship with God by faithfully praying and spending time in His Word. We promise to faithfully apply the principle of God's words to our lives. We promise to be faithful stewards of our time, talents, and money according to the measure God has given so that the work of this local church and its responsibility in fulfilling the Great Commission shall be faithfully and effectively carried out. We promise to faithfully teach the Bible to our children as we lead them toward a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We promise to pray for and seek the salvation of family, friends, acquaintances, and associates. We promise to be trustworthy and just in our communication and transactions. We promise to be exemplary in our behavior, avoiding unkind words and unrighteous anger. We promise to abstain from those things that would defile our bodies, which are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We promise to pray for each other and to help each other in sickness and distress. We promise to be sympathetic in our feelings and speech. We promise to give and receive admonition with meekness and affection. We promise to be slow to take offense and always ready for reconciliation, seeking it without delay as we encourage one another in the blessed hope of our Lord's return. We promise to honor, esteem, and love our elders and pastors. We promise to pray fervently and regularly for them as they exercise their spiritual office and to demonstrate a tender regard for their reputations. We promise that when we move from this place, we shall unite with some local church as soon as possible to carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of the Word of God. Amen. Father, I thank you for this covenant and those that declared it. I thank you for your spirit to unify us around these biblical truths. I thank you for this church and its aim to worship you and make much of you, strengthen each other in every way we can, and share freely the good news of the gospel with all those in need. We pray for your blessing not only to rest upon us as a faith family, but upon those who've gone out from us and are serving, ministering, worshiping, thriving elsewhere. We pray for those whom you will gather to us. We pray for those that might be called from among us to serve in this glorious calling of the global missionary enterprise. No fool's errand, but a certain triumph. Lord, I pray your blessing today especially over Bill and Nancy Teton. Bless them as this is the last day worshiping with us. Bless them in Colorado Springs. Bless them in a new church family and with wonderful reconnections with family members who live there. Bless their travels and their move. Thank you for the blessing that you will supply to anyone who wishes prayer to come forward on the right and the left and receive a hand on the shoulder and an intercessor praying over them. 
We pray that you would now enable us to respond to your word with a song. In Jesus' name, we pray and sing. Let's stand.